Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelup. A political shocker as Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin has decided not to run for re-election. A Republican from Washington State gets a promotion. And should judges be appointed or elected? We'll get to that question in a bit, but first, a major announcement from Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin. She has said that she will not be running for a second term in 2021. Among other things, this opens up the seat to a number of candidates that are expected to run once again, and it furthers speculation that Jenny Durkin will join the Biden administration. She, of course, served as U.S. attorney under President Obama. Joining me now is Como's political analyst, Ron Donsauer. And uh, first off, what do you think the thought process was behind this decision? I know in that video that she posted online, she says she wants to spend all her time working to rebuild Seattle. Yeah, you know, um, I the only surprise for me is, is if she decided she was going to run again. Okay, I would have been surprised. I really didn't expect her to do a second term for a variety of reasons, and the reasons fall sort of in these categories. A fatigue factor, just generally being the mayor of a large city and overseeing you know a lot of riots and issues around management and police enforcement, that takes its toll. In addition to that, you've got a city that's losing businesses left and right, and the city of Seattle, in my opinion, is in trouble economically. Right? Even though with the new sort of "quote unquote" head tax, they've got some they've got some serious economic issues, and I'm not sure in any near term will we see any change in the economic picture here. In and then, last but not least, not about age per se, but you know, she's had a you know very long career. And, uh, you know, at this point, I think she wants to make sure that uh, she's going out on her own terms because there's no doubt in my mind, you know, she would get a she would get a very serious challenge from the left um, if she were to run for reelection. Ideologically, she, you know, she is not kindred spirits with the Seattle City Council. Um, they are so far to the left of her. It's hard to find them on the ideological spectrum. How much did the fights with the Seattle City Council, do you think, factored into her decision not to run again? Because especially in the last couple of years, it looked like the council was running the show and not the mayor. Yeah, and I think there is a fatigue, as I said, I think there's a fatigue factor with all that with her. Every day she's got to get up and go to battle with the Seattle City Council. And, you know, you want to get up every day and enjoy your job, no matter what it is, whether you're an elected official or something else. And I'm sure there was not a lot of pleasure with having to do that day in and day out, and a lot more pain than pleasure, probably. And then, of course, her first term, aside from the difficulties with the legislative branch, you had, as you mentioned, all the protests, the riots that she had to deal with, her police chief left uh, unceremoniously. Uh, It was really a tough first term for her. Well, I don't know how it could have been much tougher, you know, uh, capped off with the pandemic. So it's been, you know, timing sometimes is everything in politics. And the timing for this term, in some respects, could not have been worse for her. And what she walked into and then all, I mean, there's just kind of meltdowns left and right. And it just wears you out every single day when you got to deal with a, you know, basically with a street fight every day when you go into the office. And so... It's actually an environment where it's very difficult under these circumstances to get anything accomplished. And again, I I don't mean to be, yes, I do, I guess, picking on the Seattle City Council, but, you know, they are not, you know, they're not in touch with the rest of the state. And some would argue maybe they never have been, but it's even worse today than has been for a long, long time. It'll be interesting to see what, what all happens next, but Seattle's in for a very, very rough ride, in my opinion.
And then the big question is, who runs to replace her? There are three names that come to mind, at least for me, that are at the top of the list. I would venture to say uh, Lorena Gonzalez, Teresa Mosqueda, and Nikita Oliver will all be candidates in 2021. Do you agree with that? Yeah, that sounds like a list. And, and guess what? The list will grow. <laughs> you know, there's certainly clearly a status at some level to be mayor of Seattle. Again, it isn't a job it used to be years ago because it's, it's, it's actually, at the end of the day, it's a political dead end. Okay, for anybody that serves in that position. And in all my career, I've never seen anybody that's ever served in the last 40 or 50 years that's ever moved from Seattle mayor to any other higher elective office. So in many respects, it has become and I think it will remain a political dead end forever. Whoever gets elected mayor of Seattle. All right. Ron Dotsauer, Strategies 360 and Como News political analyst. Thank you so much for joining us. You betcha. Moving on, should we really be voting for judges here in Washington state? Como's Charlie Harger has more on that. In many cities, counties, and states, judges and justices are elected, not appointed. And our next guest contends the politics of running for such a position can be fraught with peril. Joining us on the Como Newsline is former Washington Supreme Court Justice Phil Talmadge, who, along with Hugh Spitzer at the University of Washington School of Law, has written a new academic paper. It's titled Amending Codes of Judicial Conduct to Impose Campaign Contribution and Expenditure Limits on Judicial Campaigns. Phil, thanks for joining us. Uh, you, You contend the fundraising in judicial campaigns can be at least a, a bad look. What did you find? Well, the, the the problem is that that fundraising and political campaigns can be a, a real problem, both as to the appearance of, of fairness for a judge uh, who's ultimately elected to the bench, uh, as well as the the actual potential bias. Uh, we have a an example of the case out of uh, West Virginia, where the justices of the West Virginia Supreme Court were significantly affected by campaign contributions, and the, the, there was a decision of the courts, Caperton, that that addressed that that point. I think it's uh, it's difficult. It's it's untoward for judges to be out uh, scraping around for for monies. Uh, they have to raise money for political campaigns if they're running for for election. And we have a, an election system that I value for judges. But at the same time, I think it's important to have limitations on that in terms of the the amount of money that can be contributed by any source to that judge running for office, and also limitations on expenditures. So we. Uh, we don't see massive amounts of money being introduced into uh, judicial campaigns to oust justices who've made tough calls in cases, and uh, they, they face the, the consequence of that from, from big money. I want to talk about two aspects of this, not only how the fundraising gets done, uh, but also the, the different limits I, I found interesting, it really changes by state. But let's start with... You've run for state Supreme Court justice, and you've also, uh, prior to that, were running as a Democrat for state Senate for many years. D- describe for people listening right now, what is the difference if you're running for a judicial office when you go out for a fundraiser compared to when you're running for an elected partisan position? There's a, there's a gigantic difference to begin with, uh, and that is when you're running for a partisan office, you can ask people for money. You can call up and, and say, can you please contribute to my campaign? You can hold a fundraiser. You can be present and you can ask them to co- contribute to your campaign. When you're a judge, you can't do any of that. You can't ask anybody directly for a campaign contribution as a judge. You can't even be in the room when your 
campaign finance chair, for example, asks people who are in attendance at that affair to make a contribution to your campaign because the judicial ethics rules ban that. So it's a, it's a very odd system for, for judges running for office. They have to sign the public disclosure uh, information indicating, you know, campaign contributions have been made to them, but they're in theory not to know who it is that's made a contribution to their campaign, and they can't ask directly for the campaign contribution themselves, making the fundraising effort a very strange one, to say the least. And what I found really interesting was we have modest campaign contribution limits in Washington state. Uh, A few states even have lesser limits, but there are some states in which it's a uh, theoretically unlimited amount. That's right. So you can make a contribution of any size or dimension in in some of these states uh, to a judicial campaign, and there's no problem. There have been efforts made in times past to to go out after certain uh, justices uh, of our state Supreme Court in cases uh, in in campaigns. There was an effort made a few years back to oust a couple of the justices, the uh, Chief Justice, then Chief Justice Gary Alexander, uh, was the subject of a of a very powerful campaign to try to oust him, and lots of money was spent uh, in uh, in trying to remove him from office. It was unsuccessful because Gary was a very fine justice and and very popular statewide. But it was it was indicative of the kind of thing that can happen, and uh, it really would be a problem for most judicial campaigns to see huge influxes of money come in because of the limitations on the the justice's ability to raise money. What's your take on actually being partisans when running for office? In Washington, it's a nonpartisan position, but there are some states in which you can be a Democrat, you can be a Republican, you can be a libertarian, I suppose. Yeah, and I think that's a terrible idea. I mean, I think I think the campaign process is appropriate. But I think the running for the judiciary is ultimately the kind of campaign that should be a nonpartisan campaign. Uh, you know, the people that run for the for the, the positions on the court, I mean, in some instances have been partisans in their past, as I was. I mean, I was a Democrat. You had guys like Jim Dolliver that I served with on the state Supreme Court. Jim was a terrific justice. But Jim was the, you know, the chief of staff to Dan Evans and a lifelong Republican. If you went into his chambers in the Supreme Court, there were all these elephant figures all over the room. But nevertheless, we were able to work together and come together as justices of the court to apply the law fairly and independently. And that's the way it should be. I don't think people should run as partisan officials for the courts. I think elections are I think elections are a better system, in my view, for selecting judges. Uh, But I I don't think a, a partisan election process is one that makes sense. Tell us what you argue needs to be done in terms of reform. Well, the, the interesting thing that Hugh and I, I think, offered uh, in, in that paper is, is this point. There are judicial ethics standards that apply to judges. We have a state commission on judicial conduct that I was resp- was one of the people responsible for getting put into place uh, as a constitutional amendment and later as a statute when I was a state senator. And that that commission is involved, along with the Supreme Court, in in the process of judicial ethics. There are judicial ethics standards that the court promulgates as the as the uh, as the leader of the judicial branch of government, and that are implemented by the commission. I think the Supreme Court has the power through its rulemaking authority as the the chief uh, institution of the of the judicial branch of government to set campaign contribution limits 
and to adopt campaign financing requirements for judges. Uh, I think that's part and parcel of what the, the judicial branch of government as an independent, separate branch of government can do. And Hugh and I uh, offered in our paper uh, basic support for that proposition. Our state Supreme Court could decide to adopt sig- more significant campaign contribution limits uh, in judicial races. It could also you know, promulgate rules for public financing of uh, races uh, beginning at the Superior Court level and leading up to the state Supreme Court. And we think that that would be a wise idea for the court to do. Okay, and I just want to make sure people heard you clearly because that that's uh, something we don't hear very often. You're saying that the state Supreme Court, uh, under its own authority and outside of the state legislature, could enact these types of rules for elections and races for the judiciary. I believe that's true. I think the the authority of the court through its rulemaking process for the members of the court, for the members of the judiciary, uh, is that expansive that it could adopt campaign contribution limits and it could adopt campaign, you know, financing requirements uh, independent of the legislative process. And is that Something that could be applicable in the other 49 states? Yes, I, I think I think that's I mean, it would be dependent upon the, the laws of those individual states. But our, our case, our, our case law in Washington has made it clear that the court has, you know, very significant, you know, power over the, the, the operation of the judicial branch of government. There, there are cases, for example, that said the state auditor doesn't have the authority to come in and audit the judiciary. It's not, it's, it's a violation of separation of powers for the executive branch through the auditor to try to do something regarding the judiciary. Uh, similarly, any efforts by the legislature to require collective bargaining for the employees of the bar association, a branch of the state judiciary, have been struck down by our Supreme Court. So the breadth of the authority of the court over its own operations is extraordinary in Washington. It may not be quite so much in other states, but I suspect it it will be pretty close to that. So I think it's something that is clearly true in Washington and may be true in the other states that uh, this rulemaking process could result in uh, you know, uh, effects on the on the campaign process. And for us lay people, describe that for a moment. Maybe this is too much into the weeds, but I, I always find this interesting. State Supreme Court over not only rules on contentious cases, but they oversee the bar association. Yes, they they run the, they they operate the bar association. They also operate a number of other judicial branch agencies that that answer to the court. There's the uh, office of the uh, the court administrator, for example, that that provides a lot of support and assistance to uh, the the court system, computer systems for the court, for example, among other things. The court adopts rules for the operation of the court system. I mean, those are you know day to day rules like when do you file a complaint and how do you answer and how many days do you have to do this, that, or the other thing. But there are also rules that that relate to you know how the how the lawyers. Uh, behave, their ethical rules for lawyers that the Supreme Court adopts, their ethical rules for judges that the Supreme Court adopts. So the, the court's power, separate and apart from its case responsibility, is quite extraordinary and quite broad. I, I think that this is well within their power to do if they want to if they want to step up and try to do it, particularly if uh, you start to see these judicial campaigns get uh, get out of hand. And you know, not to be not to be crass about it, but you know, if you were if you were a powerful interest group, and this was true in Caperton, Caperton's a great 
example of, of this, you know, is the coal industry in, in West Virginia. I mean, you kind of think they have a little bit of sway in, in politics in West Virginia. But if, if you're a powerful interest, you know, it might dawn on you, it's a lot less expensive to buy judicial branch of government than it is to, to buy <laughs> the executive or the legislative branches of government and a lot less obvious because it's not, it doesn't get the same level of attention that legislative campaigns or, or statewide, uh, you know, executive branch campaigns do. So it's, it's really an interesting, you know, thought process that some people might say, and, and you kind of see it, you know, in, in, in broad outline form in the, in, in Mitch McConnell's effort to stack the federal judiciary with all these people that come out of the, the, um, the Federalist Society, you know. Former Washington Supreme Court Justice Phil Talmadge joining us here on the Como Politicast. I'm Charlie Harger, Como News. And finally, Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers, a Republican from Spokane, has gotten a promotion. She will now serve as the ranking member on the House Energy Committee. Once again, Como political analyst Ron Dotsauer. Well, it's a really nice honor for her, frankly, because, you know, we have been an interesting, our whole region, the Bonneville power system, right? And, and having somebody in that position on that committee to help sort of protect our power interests is critical. And it's great for her to have that position. It may even be better for the states here in the northwest of Washington, Idaho, Oregon, and western Montana and what it pretends for the future. And in addition to that, you know, we're also very hydro-dependent. Um, uh, with our dams and everything and, and having her there to make sure that hydro interests are protected here in the Northwest is, is no small deal as well. But how much can she really do being in the minority? Well, she's a ranking member, you know, and, and the minority isn't much of a minority right now in this House of Representatives. I don't know what the final number is going to be, but the Democrats don't have much of a working margin, right? And so that will increase her strength and power, if you will, as a ranking member on that very, very crucial committee to the Northwest. Well, she has leadership experience before. She was the chair of the House Republican Conference for several years. She's served on various important committees. So this isn't really anything new to her, is it? Well, as a committee assignment, I think it is in terms of her ranking position on the committee. But yes, she's always been in the queue for significant leadership positions within the Republican caucus. And this is just another, a, a bigger milestone, if you will, for her in her uh, congressional career. This is this is a this is a huge deal, and most people won't you know, necessarily completely understand what it portends. But for us here in the Northwest, the energy dependent, and we have low, relatively low cost power compared to the rest of the country, and that really does help fuel our economy. And so having there uh, in that position, kind of protecting those interests, um, is very critical for all of us. I think it's I think it's really a good deal for everybody. I really do. And, and it could be, should be helpful to, even to the Democrats from the delegation of the Northwest as well. So it's a win all around. And she, you know, she's very competent. She'll do a good job. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and our hourly news updates. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening and have a good week.